Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a Decoding TV bonus episode. I'm David Chen. I'm here with Patrick Klepek. Patrick, good morning. How's it going today? It's good. How are you doing? I'm excited to dive into today's topic with you. Now, as people who have been listening to Decoding TV for a while may already be aware, uh, Patrick Klepek is going to be my co-host on Decoding TV for the foreseeable future. And so uh, we're putting together, we're getting the old bonus content machine revved up again. Uh, really excited to do that. Yeah, Patrick's making the bonus content noises <laughs> to, simula- to simulate that, that, that what's going on. And uh, and so what we are trying to do with uh, some of the bonus episodes is just talk about stuff that's uh, in the news that we're interested in and passionate about. Uh, and so today we're going to be discussing a new article at Vulture called The Decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes. I want to say a few things before we kick this conversation off, which is, uh, you know, I, I have a standing offer out to Patrick. Hey, anything that's, that catches your attention – that you want to talk about, let's talk about it. So Patrick sent this article to me days ago. He's like, hey, let's talk about this in bonus. And uh, I agreed. I have since talked about this on uh, other podcasts that I also host. Uh, but I still think it's valuable to discuss it because there's a lot to dive into and Patrick will provide a different perspective. But I just wanted people to have some context for uh, why I am talking about it here on the Bonus Decoding TV episode. The other thing I want to mention is that these bonus episodes are free for the foreseeable future. Uh, although if you are a paid subscriber at decodingtv.com, you get early access as well as ad-free access. And eventually, the the plan is that they will be behind a Decoding TV paid subscriber wall. So uh, you get it for free for now. And if you're enjoying it, you want to support what we're doing on Decoding TV, hopefully you'll become a paid subscriber at decodingtv.com. All right, Patrick, let's get into it. Vulture publishes piece by Lane Brown with reporting by Luke Winky called The Decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, subhead, the most overrated metric in movies is erratic, reductive, and easily hacked, and yet has Hollywood in its grip. I think I would describe the issues that this article details, I would put them into two buckets. Uh, one is the problem with the fact that Rotten Tomatoes exists and is important. So that is one bucket, uh, and like why that is problematic. And the second bucket I would identify is things that PR firms and studios are doing to juice their films' Rotten Tomato scores, right? That's kind of the two big things that uh, the article brings up for me. Let me know if you think I, there's another category of thing I missed. But let's start with the first thing, which is the importance of Rotten Tomatoes, why it seems to have such a, pri- a place of primacy. Patrick Klepek, you come from the world of video games, and I think you are also dealing with this issue, which is to say numerical grades, letter grades being put on art, aggregators that combine all those things, and uh, this kind of being a tyrannical structure under which to try to do interesting reporting and do interesting criticism, right? Like, talk about your entanglements with uh, things like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic in the past. Yeah, so the equivalent of, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes uh, in video games, as you pointed out, is Metacritic. And I don't think you can entangle the relationship I've had with Metacritic. I say, like, 
I, I mean more like a general we as like video game critics, journalists, like running media organizations, working at media organizations from the economies of running those websites. I think if you talk to most folks that have written a review, uh, they don't like putting the number at the end, whether it's a letter grade or any number of different grading systems, three stars, five stars, you know, A to F, whatever the case is, it feels very reductionist for the work you've put in and also very arbitrary for uh, assigning it to the, to the work that you're judging or interpreting itself. Because whatever your d- definition of a C or a B or an A is going to be often different than the audience and getting on an even level with that between the, the writer, the critic, the audience is extremely difficult. The problem is the fastest way to get people talking about something that you've written is to assign a grade to it, whatever metric you want to choose. Um, And in in a media environment in which it's increasingly difficult to get people to read things, to click on things, to stay on a website long enough for an ad impression to become full and pay out uh, the, the way you would like it to, you need people to talk about something. And so you can wax poetic for 2,000, 3,000 words about Starfield um, or whatever the game might be. The thing that people start with, and I have this impulse just as like guilty as anyone else, is like sometimes you might scroll down to the end and like see what the kind of where they where they fell on it and then go back up. And people like to argue over the scores. People like to share the scores. PR, PR firms like to put the scores um, into marketing. And so there is this entire machine around the very specific like qualitative interpretation of a work that uh, I think you've seen over a lot of institutions and games step back from like, hey, we're not doing review scores. If you want to read the review, look, read the conclusion. You can get a, like you can try if you want, like, what did we think? It's probably in that last paragraph. And if you want the extra detail, you can find it in the rest of the review. But I, I don't think you can untangle economics from the rise and continued persistence of scoring mechanisms. And I think there is a lot of echoes in that in Hollywood being tied up with Rotten Tomatoes. And the last point I would make is that the it's not just the economies of running media, it's the economies of running game developers. I mean, most famously, uh, I believe, uh, uh, the developers of Fallout New Vegas, uh, Obsidian, um, had their bonuses tied to their Metacritic score. And I might have some of the details on this wrong, but either applies to this scenario or it definitely applies to other scenarios. They missed it by a point. Because any number of reviews got them, let's say, from a 90, which was the number that they needed to hit by their publisher, to an 89. And because of those arbitrary scores, those arbitrary interpretations, a bunch of people who probably crunched and exploited themselves to ship like a classic video game didn't get their bonuses. And so that's different than what's tied up here financially, but I think they speak to similar sorts of entanglements of economies and labor and art that I think are driving a lot of the conversation around this piece itself. Yeah, I I was aware that sometimes I think it's uh, usually the publisher uh, sets a, an incentive around the Metacritic score, yeah. right? Uh, and yeah. the idea is basically that, uh, hey, we're paying this studio to make this game and we will pay you this much if you make the game and deliver it on time and we'll pay you this much more if the game is good. And the way we measure if the game is good is by Metacritic score. So it's like a quick Correct. way of determining whether the game is good. Um, and it, on, on the one hand, the 
need and desire for some ostensibly objective metric to evaluate something, that's it's very understandable. It's like, hey, you can't just deliver like a terrible game or you can't deliver a terrible product and have no consequences for it. On the other hand, uh, it's really upsetting when, as you said, it's it's uh, it feels wrong when it's tied to financial incentives. And it particularly feels bad when it's tied to financial incentives uh, or it's tied to a score that feels like it can be easily hacked. Uh, yeah. And in the case of Rotten Tomatoes, that's kind of what this article lays out. Now, in the film world, the incentives are very different, right? Uh, it's it's rare that there's a situation where a, a studio will say to a director, "Make this movie, and if it gets a, <laughs> a like a ninety percent Rotten Tomatoes, we'll give you a bonus." I, I, I've never heard of anything like that happening before. Uh huh. But the article does detail stuff that is similar to that, like kind of adjacent to that. For instance, I'm reading here from the article. Between October 2018 and January 2019, Rotten Tomatoes added eight reviews to Ophelia's score. This is a, uh, an indie film. Um, seven were favorable, and most came from critics who had reviewed uh, at least one other Bunker 15 movie. Now, Bunker 15 is the, the PR firm that does a lot of this uh, Rotten Tomatoes score hacking, as described in the article. Um, so Ophelia – so what, what happens then is uh, that as a result of like some of the scores that have been introduced, Ophelia climbs the tomato meter to 62%, flipping from rotten to fresh. The next month, the distributor IFC Films announced that it had acquired Ophelia for release in the US, end quote, right? So the idea is that like maybe for a smaller indie film, uh, if you can get that tomato meter score a little bit higher, it, it's probably not the decisive factor for uh, somebody desiring to acquire the movie and distribute it, but it's probably an input. Do you know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. a distribution deal with a company like IFC is A, financially beneficial, B, has huge career implications because it means people can see your movie. It means you might get the next movie based off of uh, of people seeing this one. Uh, So it's a little bit different, right? And and some people also think that Rotten Tomato scores can impact – Box office, like that people will look at the Rotten Tomato score, uh, the tomato meter, and then decide whether or not they're going to go see a movie. Uh, this is like a lot harder to measure, uh, and it's, it's a subject of much dispute. But I guess uh, I wanted to affirm what Patrick's saying, which is that there's kind of financial incentives attached in various ways to scores on art. Uh, now, Patrick, you were talking about how uh, we would love for people to just consume the nuanced, you know, eight-page <laughs> article. Uh, yeah. But the, instead, uh-huh. they, they they spend a lot of time arguing about scores. For, first of all, one could argue that – I mean, I guess I'm curious, where do you come out on that? Are you in favor of scores? And, uh, you know, if uh, we, I don't, I don't want to pin you to a specific position, but I'm curious, like, are you in favor of scores? You know, like and, – and are you – and how do you feel about aggregators putting all the scores together? Um, personally, I don't have a problem with scores cause I, I, I like, I like the arbitrary nature of them in that it forces you to sort of commit to something in the same way that I enjoy doing top 10 lists at the end of the year and, um, not having it be my 10 favorite movies in no particular order. No, order it. Stop being a coward. Like pick one that's number one. And the reason is because I like... I like create like using like my own value structure to then interpret how works 
meant to me. And like the order, while it's certainly arbitrary and the score is certainly arbitrary, it does like help me process some of how I feel about a work and how I reflect on it. Like, especially when I'm looking back at the end of the year, but as a culturally, I think they're an albatross. I think like they should not exist. I right. think they, I don't think they help anything. I think they, they broadly are, are, are just a net negative um, and, and aren't, aren't really helping anything, but like fill in like the graphics you'll see after a movie or a game comes out and like plastered with all of the scores and the little quotes that go associated with it. Like, I don't, I don't think it's helping anything, but um, I, I personally haven't really minded it, but I, I, I think most organizations, there's a reason they have trended towards removing scores because um, they're willing to give up, frankly, some of the vitriol, because if you are that, if you are that critic, that is out on the limb that says like, it's so much different to like, like Starfield, which is like the, the, you know, the biggest release the last couple of weeks. Uh, if you don't like that game and you give it a three out of 10, the vitriol you're going to get, the death threats you're going to get are so different than if you wrote four sentences at the end and said, I don't think this game was very good. Um, there is an emotional reaction that, the grading, the number scores, which I think is tied up in like this broader fanboy, like fandom, fandom culture that I think has accelerated in our social media age. And then scores are weaponized by audiences um, as part of these different fan cultures. And so I think this stuff all gets tied up together where the reason to put a score on something is an incentive to be caught up in the fandom and these culture wars that are occurring over these works. And that will hopefully as a byproduct drive traffic and interest to the website that you're running. And so the, the incentives for doing it are really toxic and the incentives for doing like, like the positive reasons for doing it, like are really, you start running out of them when you try to count them on, on your hand. And I think those lessons broadly apply to interpreting and observing all media, um, even though, like my experience broadly has been in video games. It's interesting. I think uh, the, what you're referring to, yeah, like Starfield, huge controversy this week when, uh, or last week, I guess, when GameSpot and IGN, two of the biggest outlets in the video game space, gave Starfield uh, probably one of the biggest games of the fall, if not the game event of the year. Sure. Uh, they gave that game a seven out of 10. I saw Starfield 7 out of 10 was trending on x.com. Um, Bad. People, Bad. People really up in arms. And I think you're, it's a great observation, Patrick, to connect it to fandom culture. The idea being that people take art so personally these days. Mm -hmm. uh, they think, hey, the art that I consume and that I like represents me. Like... It's me in some way. I'm connected to this art. And if you don't like the art, you are judging me. You're, you're, you're judging the art, but you're also judging me, right? And or at the or possibly judging my curatorial skills, like judging my taste. Because like, <laughs> right. if you don't like it and I think it's good, then you're saying, I don't know what I'm talking about, right? That's not, what it, that's not the truth, though. That's not the reality. The reality is people are different. They have different opinions. They recognize different elements in art. They relate to it differently. They experience it differently. It's all a wonderful tapestry, and we should celebrate, celebrate all of it, Patrick Klepek. Um, <laughs> but it's, it feels so... 
focused and personal when it comes to video games. Like, I, I'm not saying film critics have not received death threats before. Like, that's how, it just feels like the frequency and order of magnitude just feels so much higher in the video game space. It's very, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when people were getting upset that, you know, Armand White or whatever was ruining right. Toy Story 3's Rotten Tomatoes score or something like whatever movie <laughs> of the day it was, you know, like, um, so that definitely, that stuff definitely happened in the film world, but it's, in my opinion, way less prevalent today. Uh, whereas now it feels like it's even more prevalent in, in the video game world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of consider that. Uh, I, I think it's less Rotten Tomatoes because it's um, it is kind of the standard. Like, there's no real there's no real IGN equivalent in the movie world. Yes, IGN does write movie reviews. Siddhartha Dlaka is a freaking genius. Uh, you know, past and hopefully future. Decoding TV co-host, like I, I read his work religiously, and I think he's amazing. But I don't think that like IGN occupies the same space in the movie world as it does in the video game world, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, true. And and so as a result, like we there there is no equivalent of IGN. Like maybe if the New York Times gave something a bad review, you know, like that might be equivalent. But like uh, I think that you know one of the things identified in this article is that. Is that film critics just as like the the importance of film critics in the culture has just faded dramatically over the course of the last couple decades? You know, last generation had people like Pauline Kael and and people that were like legendary people that could make or break a movie, and that just does not exist anymore. In its place, we have aggregators and algorithms, right? That's what we have in its place, um, and. I I think uh, I agree with you that culturally, it is a net loss for us. Like it is bad for us that that is happening, um, but it's also the reality that many of us live with, which is uh, that if you put a score, your review will get more clicks, right? And if your review gets more clicks, it's more likely, maybe it's more likely that you'll stay employed or be compensated for, you know, or whatever it is. Like it, we are incentivized towards. Um, Towards these forces that we don't necessarily agree with, uh, but it's interesting your attitude on it, Patrick, which is that you appreciate the constraints, uh, and I, I feel the same way. It's like tweets. Remember when tweets were first a thing? Yeah, you would write a tweet, and it's like, hey, there's some art, there, there's some like, there's some something creatively rewarding about taking your thoughts and trying to like compress them into a small package, right? Like, and Absolutely. and similarly, making a top ten, there's some there's something like. Creatively, there's something invigorating about like saying like, "Hey, if I had to sum this all up, what would it be? Into a tweet, into a number, into um, uh, a score, you know, whatever it is." So anyway, uh, so that's some that's some of the reflections about like the score as having primacy. I, I don't think it's going to go away. Like, I don't think there's anything we can do to make it go away. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Rotten Tomatoes is a key factor. In marketing, in people's purchasing decisions, and I don't, I don't know what like other than not talking about it, which most critics don't already. You know, I don't know what can be done about it. Um, do you think anything can be done about about it, Patrick? Before we move on, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that like 
I have seen this consistently in some of the wider discussion around this. And there is, uh, I think there's some, you know, quotes from uh, the director, Paul Schrader in the piece that uh, point to this, where there's definitely a running observation. I think this is more like in the filmmaking community than, than anywhere else of like, well, the viewing public is lazy. Like that's part of how we've gotten here is like these lazy motherfuckers just don't even know how to watch the good stuff. And <laughs> I do feel like that's the vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that view, but to push back on that, there's so there's too much stuff, right? Like I think part of the prevalence of Rotten Tomatoes, the, the desperation to grasp onto anything that can give you a sense of, is this worth my time is because we live in an age in which we don't, there isn't free time. Like you can fill that with something, anything. There is always a thing you can watch or play or, and to live in an age of infinite consumption creates a world in which people are going to grasp onto weird things to figure out what exactly they should be watching or they should be playing or they should be listening to. And so I think it's a symptom of like a larger, frankly, a sickness. Like there's just too much stuff, honestly. Like it's bad. Like it, it makes it very difficult as a viewer to grasp onto anything or for anything. Like there's a reason so few works. Um, this applies to all media, like manage to have like in your words, like cultural relevance because there's too much culture. Um, and it's cool that so many things are being made, but I also mean, think it leads to a situation where for the audience, well, what am I supposed to watch? It used to be easier where it's like, here are the big things. Watch these. Pick the one that appeals to you. And now that, that now that everything targets every micro demographic, every like niche interest, um, it, I think part of the reason the studios are so tied up in this is because at least it's an objective metric. Is it doing anything? We're not exactly sure, but it's something. And like, marketing, the big revolution of marketing in the last 15 years is being able to target, right? We're like in the past, like you put up the billboards, you put up the trailers. Is it doing anything? I don't know. We'll see what the box office tells us. Uh, Whereas now you can sort of, you can track, you can literally track people and their behavior. And I think part of Rotten Tomatoes is an extension of this addiction to precisely knowing people's habits and what they're, you can expect from them. And when you don't, you're going to find literally anything you can to solve that problem. And I think Rotten Tomatoes is one of those. We're like, at least it's a metric. We're not sure of the science to point to like, is is movie that was good and going to be a box office hit was going to do those things regardless of the Rotten Tomatoes. Like it, the article seems to lay out like it's inconclusive at best. But if you're like working at a studio and you're talking to your bosses, like, but we can point to this number, like number, number good. Um, I see how we arrive at an obsession over it when you're being expected to deliver results or at least anything that folks can grasp on. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch, your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a, a little bit about the flaws of the Rotten Tomatoes system in the article. Uh, like, for instance, Rotten Tomatoes just tells you it, how, if critics liked it or not. They don't tell you how much they liked it. Quote, there's no accounting for enthusiasm, no d- attempt to distinguish between extremely and slightly positive uh, ne- or negative reviews. That means a film can score a perfect 100 with just passing grades. Uh, in other words, like, if everyone barely liked it, it's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, right? <laughs> but that would not... Well, that, even, even Schrader at the end points out, like, there was a review of one of his works, and it was like, the person thought it was interesting. Didn't really work, but, like, thought it was interesting. And that's a negative review. It's like, <laughs> is that a negative Right, review? exactly. It, it, it's obviously this binary system that compresses everything. Um, but yeah, a publicist says, in the old days, if an independent film got all three-star reviews, that's like the kiss of death. With Rotten Tomatoes, if you get all three-star reviews, it's fantastic, end quote. That's amazing. Did you see this uh, Richard Linklater interview, Patrick Klepek? Uh, he... I've seen a quote going around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I believe it was this... alongside <laughs> what I was just talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Richard Linklater has made a new movie called Hitman. Apparently, it's amazing. I can't wait to see it. He did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter. And Hollywood Reporter asked him the question, uh, you're such a pioneer of American indie cinema. Do you think a career like the one you've cut out for yourself and enjoyed over the years is possible today? And Richard Linklater responds, it feels like it's gone with the wind or gone with the algorithm. (laughs) Sometimes I'll talk to some of my contemporaries who I came up with during the 90s and we'll go, oh, my God, we could never get that done today. I'm just going to skip through his response because it's pretty long. Um, But he says, with a changing culture and changing technology, it's hard to see cinema slipping back into the prominence it once held. I think we could feel it coming on when they started calling films content, but that's what happens when you let tech people take over your industry. It's hard to imagine indie cinema in particular having the cultural relevance that it did. It's hard to imagine the whole culture is going to be on the same page about anything, much less filmmaking. We can be self-absorbed and say it's just about cinema, but it's really all of our modern cultural life. You could say the same thing about reading books. A lot of young people can't read a book because they're just on their phones. Some really intelligent, passionate, good citizens just don't have the same need for literature and movies anymore. It doesn't occupy the same space in the brain. I think that's just how we've given our lives uh, over our lives largely to this thing that depletes the need for curating and filling ourselves up with meaning from art and fictional worlds. That need has been filled up with, let's face it, advanced delivery systems for advertising. It's sad, but what can you do? I also don't want to go through life thinking our best days are behind us. That's just not productive. So in your own area... You just have to persist and do what you can on behalf of the things that you believe in. You have to believe that everything can change and that things can go back to being a little bit better. Can't we just go back to being a little better? End quote. Powerful words from Richard Linklater. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, uh, despite the fact that we acknowledge that there are economic and financial realities to uh, needing to put a score on or, or, or the audience wanting that or that expediting uh, the work. I think it's safe to say that Patrick and I put work out into the world that we believe in, you know, 
And certainly, uh, you know, on on the film cast, we don't use any numerical scores or grades or anything like that, despite people having requested that in the past. Uh, I, I don't, and I don't believe you do on remap or waypoint. Like I, I don't remember that, right? Yeah, it's, it's like we we appreciate a long, nuanced discussion that doesn't just be like, "Hey, it gets an A" or any, you know anything like that. You should just have um, people guess it at the end. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, what do you think the score, score was exactly? Communicated, you can, you and that will aggregate that. And like, it turns out the waypoint audience thought this was a B plus. <laughs> yes, it could be a fun little game for yourself. So, uh, uh, but I, I thought I thought that that comment from him. I think it's actually a really thoughtful articulation of this broader issue, which I think sometimes is, is smashed down to like young people are lazy and like, don't want this stuff anymore. And I think tying that into the economic realities of technology algorithms, um, um, you know, straight up addiction to phones, um, uh, like the fact that everything is at your fingertips, thus leading to a lack of curiosity or need for curiosity, I think is, is a really smart observation that doesn't necessarily, it looks at like, look at the systemic problems. Don't blame the individual people for, uh, like how we've arrived here. Cause it is rarely the, the, the blame of like the 18 year old for how we've gotten here. The system has led the 18 year old to these types of habits. Um, and some people can break out of that and some people can fit into those old classical models. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I'll be curious if, 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 you know, uh, like I haven't seen it yet, but I know that, uh, you all at the film cast really liked it, but talk to me, um, like a really successful independent horror film, uh, this summer, like, like those guys came from YouTube. It's like, is that, if not a, a new path for indie filmmaking, then what is? And I just wonder if, part of what we're at here is like generational crossroads on what it means to be an indie filmmaker, where you, where you make your mark, like where, where, where that work lives. Um, you know, Quentin Tarantino lamenting that he doesn't read critics anymore. It's like, well, you know, we, we had conversation recently on a recent bonus episode about, you know, the rise of like TikTok critics and like, what do we call them? And it's like, well, yeah. if the medium is changing and you're uninterested in what the new medium is, your direct, your initial response is going to be, well, this change is bad and they're not doing things the way that we used to do. Thus, I don't like it. Um, and it can be true. Like, like it can be true that there are problems with the new system, but sometimes it is, can be also that the system changed and you haven't, um, which I think is interesting. Yeah. I think w- with regards to this quote, it's, it's really on the money when he says like uh, what, uh, that, this kind of desire has been replaced with advanced ad delivery mechanisms, of which one could argue Rotten Tomatoes is one, right? Yeah. Uh, and what? And you're right about all that stuff you said, Patrick, about the culture and how it all ties in together. Why watch eight movies if you can just look at a score and then decide to watch one, right? Like, why? Uh, why should I need to? try and stumble my way through the world if I can just look at a number and that can dictate what my choices are because it's so much easier. It's so much simpler that way and I have too much stuff to consume anyway, right? So it's all kind of connected with each other. All right, Patrick, uh, we've talked for a really long time about just kind of the overall place that Rotten Tomatoes and these scores hold in the culture. I, I should point out the article also points out to points to some tactics that a PR firm's utilized to increase Rotten Tomato scores. I, now, I have heard tell of these in the past, Patrick. I have heard tell mm, of whispers. some of these. Um, specifically, uh, the idea of, hey, uh, 
talking with either Rotten Tomatoes or a specific outlet to get an existing review flipped from negative to positive. Like that's, that's wild. <laughs> that's that's how, well because but the Paul Schrader example. It's like hey, they might they might contact Rotten Tomatoes. They're like hey, we read this Paul Schrader review, and it seems pretty positive to us. You know, like here's like mm-hmm. six six lines they said about why how good it is, and they can and that's like um, to me. I think that's like kind of um, underhanded, but still like well within the bounds of. If you're operating in this system in which there is a forced binary, then I think it's well within the bounds of being okay to like argue your case that this is a positive review and not a negative review. Does in well, Rotten Tomatoes? Can you answer this for me? Is the is Rotten Tomatoes and the people that work there are they the ones interpreting a review as positive or negative, or does the critic declare it positive or negative when it goes into their system? My understanding is it is it can be both. Is my is my okay. understanding like some like okay. I, I believe it can be submitted as such, but also that if if nothing is submitted or if it's ambiguous, that Rotten Tomatoes can make a decision about. I may be wrong about that, so apologies okay. if that's the case. Okay, um, but I, I think it would be very yeah. That that so that's that's my understanding, but. Um, uh, feel free to correct me at decodingtv@gmail.com or in the comments if that's wrong. I'll pin the comment. Uh, but the other, the thing that goes too far, in my opinion, is there are examples of movies that have low Rotten Tomato scores, and then uh, people, filmmakers, PR studio, uh, PR firms, or studios will pay lesser known uh, reviewers to write reviews that are likely to be positive, like that. Pay to play, I think, goes a little bit too far. Patrick, I don't know if you've encountered this in the video game space where people will pay for video game reviews. I've heard of that happening, like, recently Microsoft admitted uh, to the existence of, uh, like, shadow, like, ghost reviewers. Like, they'll pay, like, they'll, there'll be a game coming out and they'll pay people to, like, review it so they know what the, the scores will be when it comes out. Yeah, um, that is that that is that is just called consulting. Yeah, um, uh, that <laughs> yeah is exactly. Like one of the oldest ways, uh, if you have been in my position where you've been uh, a writer, reporter, journalist, whatever kind of like you know uh, bucket you fell into. Uh, frequently, what is what happens is that you you kind of age out of the the job because they can't pay you enough to like sustain like having a family, buying a house, that sort of thing, especially for jobs being in. California, New York, uh, so frequently. And so what often happens is like, Hey, I've spent 20 years building up this skill set. Well, what do, what do I do? And one of the more common ones is to get into consulting where I've never done any projects like this. I almost got into this before the remap stuff worked itself out. Um, because there is a lot of money to be made in the consulting side, because much like the rotten tomatoes and, and this article talks about working with certain consulting firms that can help you try and figure out what is your movie potentially going to score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a similar sort of thing where you'll be brought in to play a game and write what's called a mock review. So you write a review the same way that you'd be writing it for a publication. It's just for internal purposes. And I I don't know this for a fact, and probably each company is different. I've never done one of these uh, personally, but often I think you're meant to give it a score so they can have a sense of like, where is this game going to land with critics? And it's like, if you have done this a long time, you can probably give them a good sense that like, you know, like most people are probably going to give this game a seven or eight out of 10. Um, and so it is very common for game companies to pay uh, former game critics 
to 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 consult on uh, products ahead of release, and that that is a story as old as time for the last you know fifteen twenty years for 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 game critics that no longer have full time jobs in the media space to to do to do work like that. Extremely reasonable decision for a company to take. Uh, yep. where, where that becomes a problem is if that score is included in the Metacritic <laughs> or, or <laughs> so that, that score I don't is think included. Is tr- I don't think right. that is true. I, I, I don't, I, 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 you know, I, I look, I can be surprised about a lot of things, but as far as I know, that is never anything that yep. is, is working its way into Metacritic and open critic are the two main open critic was kind of developed in response to criticisms of Metacritic. Um, uh, and, uh, as far as I know, Nothing like that has ever happened. Do I think that, like, uh, game companies are trying to tilt the scales by dangling, like, early access to a game to a smaller outlet that is, like, more likely to give it a positive review? Well, yeah, but that's also the job of a PR person. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Like, at the end of the day, like, so much of my issue with things like Metacritic or even Rotten Tomatoes is the lack of accountability and, like, that's happening on the platform itself um because the platforms well they're enjoying the divisiveness like they win either way and there's actually really not a ton of incentive for them to improve themselves because like being a horrible platform i mean i don't know what the the, the economics or like the the financial viability of rotten tomatoes like is i don't know much money it generates but as a cultural artifact or object obviously you want to be important to a lot of people who value you and and that is clearly true of rotten tomatoes regardless of its flaws yeah uh it's also important to know that i believe uh it shares a parent company with universal pictures uh as well as Mm. fandango um so it it rotten tomatoes is part of the same company that makes movies and also sells tickets to movies so just red flag red (laughs) flag I think they, they're calling that a beige flag these days uh, in the modern <laughs> culture. No, I'm just joking. But a lot of the article talks about this, uh, this PR firm called Bunker 15. And Bunker 15 is like a uh, PR firm that is able to like juice Rotten Tomato scores. Uh, here is the quote uh, about – from, PR, from Bunker 15 about paying critics to r- write reviews. Quote, we have thousands of writers in our distribution list. A small handful have set up a specific system where filmmakers can sponsor or pay to have them review a film, end quote. So it does happen. Now, I think it's, I think you're right. Now, you're, you're saying you've never heard of that happening in, in video games. Uh, maybe you're right. I, obviously, in the film world, it does happen. Like, this is confirmed in the article yeah. that, like, and some... that's bad. Yeah, and that's bad. That's bad. Now, um... There's also other ways of juicing the scores, right? Like some of the the techniques described in the article are, hey, if the movie had a good debut somewhere and it has a really high score, don't screen it again. (laughs) Don't screen it again uh, because you don't want to mess with the score, right? Like that's a very easy way to like control the score. Um, or screen it only for people who are likely to like it, you know? Or, you know, like there's all these ways that that people can, um, can manipulate the scores. Uh, most of which I think are like fair game. I think as an audience member, there's just a couple takeaways I think you should have. Number one, don't trust the Rotten Tomato score of any movie, uh, at least not unilaterally. You know, you can use it as one input, but know that it is easily manipulated. And number two, find people that you trust online. And if you're listening to this, 
you probably trust me and Patrick Klepek. Uh, um, so, at least one of us. <laughs> At least one of us. Uh, find people you trust online and uh, and go, you know, like listen to them and uh, and see what they have to say about a specific film or a video game or a TV show or whatever. Uh, I, I think that the media of the future that is going to be thriving and interesting is going to be personality driven. It's going to be personality based. It's going to be about establishing connections to listeners, readers, viewers, uh, and going from there uh, as opposed to. You know, that will be the most rewarding sort of cultural commentary I think that's going to exist. Less so, here's a number, now go see Transformers 9. You know, like, that That to me um, doesn't sound like a very rewarding relationship personally. But maybe it works, no, yeah, but it clearly it works all, for a lot of people, you know? Yeah, and I think it really ties into, like, you. you can see the cycle that happens where you know, a, a movie or a game or a TV show gets certain scores and then it feeds into like the YouTube algorithm, right? Cause then people make videos about those scores, which feeds into pre-existing like algorithms that are going to favor like hate and anger and divisiveness. And the moment you click on one of those, even out of morbid curiosity, you're going to get recommended more of those. And there are just, it's, there are horrible incentive structures all around that are constantly rewarding behavior that, is going to make people upset. I think when you have that algorithmic behavior that financially rewards dividing people that collides with the rise of really intense personal identity fandom culture, like I'm not shocked that things are this like bad sometimes because those are just things that are, they're going to intermingle, but in the worst possible ways. And I think we are just as like our social media gets more intimate. Right. Like you can see that, but like between like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, like if you just watch like how different uh, platforms have rose, they always get more intimate. And thus, as they get more intimate, you have more parasocial relationships with people. You have people rewarded for being personal and open, which is just further tying your own identity to the thing that someone else is putting out. And there can be a lot that you get out of that. Like, you look, you and I are, you know, have carved out careers in what I hope are like healthy, like versions of these kinds of relationships. But it is absolutely the case that a lot of these are or can lead to unhealthy relationships. And I think it's just really, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I just don't, I don't know. I don't know what the better version of that is other than you and I continuing to model a great way of of running these things and and more people should do that. I yeah, I think what you're trying to say is everything I just said prior to that was BS because <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of downsides of parasocial relationships as well. So I guess there's just no hope for any of us really in this space is kind of no, what the, what the, the, the faster is. you embrace that David then, you know, the better off we'll we'll all be. We'll just start at the floor and climb our way up like we're going in that TV show silo. Just one one step at a time. <laughs> Somebody in the chat, Joe, is saying, Dave isn't my best friend. <laughs> Joe, I have some bad news for you. Anyway. Uh, it, it's a new tier uh, that we're introducing uh, to Coding TV, uh, yeah. the Dave's best friend tier, uh, yeah. Yeah. for the low, low price of. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this chat and welcome your feedback at decodingtv at gmail.com. Uh, you know, we're trying to create something that is going to be compelling for listeners and 
more importantly, compelling for paid subscribers. Uh, so if this is something you want to see more of, uh, or if this is something you find compelling, we would love to hear about it at decodingtv at gmail.com. Uh, find more of Patrick's work at crossplay.news, where he writes his newsletter, as well as at Remap Radio, wherever podcasts can be found. And of course, you can find more episodes of, po- of uh, Decoding TV at podcast.decodingtv.com and find us across all platforms TikTok, t- Instagram, Threads, uh, YouTube, Twitch, at Decoding TV. Uh, follow us all over the place. And thanks to all of the paid members at decodingtv.com who make this podcast possible. He is Patrick Klepik. I'm David Chen. Until next time, we got uh, uh, One Piece coming out soon. We, got, we just did a how-to with John Wilson conversation. Lots more stuff coming out this fall. Be sure to keep it subscribed to Decoding TV. Until next time, see you later. Goodbye. <laughs>